Well, I am so excited to have Jo Saxton with us today. Now, Jo is not only a great speaker, but she's the co-host of the podcast Lead Stories, which you really should tune into. She's also the author of many books, including titles like More Than Enchanting, Through the Barriers to Influence Your World, The Dream of You, and her latest book is Ready to Rise, which is a brilliant book um, looking at issues, real-life issues that women face, and helping women move through disempowerment and together grow. Now, I first met Jo at St. Thomas Crooks in Sheffield. Jo was in her 20s, you may remember Jo, and very impressive as a young woman leading at a time at St. Tom's when there was a lot of innovation and rapid growth going on. So not surprisingly, Jo is also a leadership coach. Now, Jo was born to Nigerian parents. She was raised in London, but now lives in Minneapolis with her husband and their two daughters. And this means that Jo brings a multicultural and international perspective to her leadership training. Now, I heard you recently talk about burnout, Jo, and um, that's really what I want to ask you to. But I want to start with a few questions around leadership, race and gender. I've heard you ask a really interesting question to leaders. That is, who were you before you, anyone told you who you were supposed to be? And I want to ask a little bit about that for you. I want to ask you that question. But first of all, just tell me, what are you getting at when you ask that question? Yeah, it's a question that I ask people a lot and leaders a lot because what I've seen um, for many of us, for most of us, there is the sense of call that we have on our lives and then life happens to you. It could be a relationship that defines you. We're defined by people's words or an experience, positive or negative, that can limit us or shape us in a particular way. And so we find that we're instead of leading out of our calling or purely out of our calling, we're leading out of the reactions to our call, the reactions to experiences. So what I'm getting at is asking people, what did God originally say? What was the original sense of calling, the original dream um, that God had given you? And are you living into that? Uh, because I find um, it helps us get um, clear, the, clear the rubble, as it were, so we can rebuild. That's brilliant. I so relate to that. Um, you know, I certainly had my own issues with stepping into leadership and had to recognise that this was all related to just bad experiences in the past um, that had come to define me. But so you're so, it's so important to ask that question. Now, Joe, you grew up in London in the 1970s where there were a lot of racial tensions and your own family experienced quite a lot of discrimination in the 1960s. And I guess, you know, that could affect who you were as you grew up. You know, who, who are you before you became a leader? Tell me what it was like for you. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was every decade. So it was the 60s when my family landed in, in um, the UK in the 70s, for sure, in the 80s, in the 90s, all of them. Every decade, there would be definitive experiences, both in London and then when I moved to Sheffield as well and when my husband and I got married. And, I, uh, and so when... In terms of how definitive it was, I think there was often the sense of being other, that although I grew up in London and grew up in England, there was often the question, so where are you really from? As though you didn't actually belong here. And sometimes it was an innocent question, but it was always this reminder that you were someone else and, and a sense of you not necessarily belonging through to the use of the N-word, through to the like strangers who would find it okay to shout on the tube, go back to your own country. And I'm like, we don't even know who each other are. And... Um, through to, um, 
you know, if I was the first black person someone had known or been in close relationship with being asked really invasive questions about your body and how often you wash to your hair and um, people touching you without consent, whether it was like just to see your skin or um, almost like you're an oddity. <laughs> and, um, and then, and if that person was a person in authority over you, so they might've been a teacher, they might've been a pastor or something, then you're, then as a child, as a teenager, you're like, how do you get to respond to this? because that person has power in some way as well um and all that I mean there was or when you're in a uh, I remember a situation when I got spat at in the street when oh a guy basically gosh. cleared I was in my 20s at this point so this would be in the, the, the 90s and um and a guy shouted at me he and his friend cleared his throat and then spat and it um and I remember thinking I this is a public place it's a busy place and no one even asks if I'm okay um and it was just the sheer vulnerability of it. And so I think when you have this layer upon layer upon layer of, of trauma, of experiences, it's hard to trust people. It's hard to know whether you're safe. When those experiences happen within the body of Christ as well, it's like you're not really sure where you belong. And, and yes, I felt called to lead, but I, I wondered whether it would be possible. Do you know, <laughs> do you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah, I wondered whether it, would yeah. be, whether it would be possible, whether it'd yeah. be tokenistic, because I wasn't, I was confident in the God I knew. I just wasn't very confident in the people around me. Yeah, yeah. And and I've heard you say um, that, you know, you can get detached from your potential when you have those kind of experiences. Yeah. So how how did that, you know, how, how did you, how were you able to sort of progress? Because, you know, not only did you have all those experiences, um, but then, you know, you're a woman you're a black woman and I met you as a, you know, in your 20s when you started leading. Um, but how did you get to lead when you had to, in a sense, you had to push through? Um, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was, there were, I think there were probably two tracks happening at the same time. Well, two or three, one in my mind, one in practice. And then the Lord just trying to get in from time to time. Um I do remember in terms of that sense of who do you think you are being this, the line going through my head the whole time. Like you're too, like you're too much. You're not enough. You're not like the people around you. Your stories, your experiences are different. Um, what do you think you've got to offer these people when, who, when, then that when they're not even sure where you're from or when, um, you know, depending on the stereotype that they'd encountered um, about Nigerians, about, um, women and all these things. I think it was just like these intersections of pressure that I felt again and again and again. And, um, and I think the thing that helped me, there were, were often mentors, men and women. There was one particular mentor when I was about 18, 19, who was a black woman. Um, and she, and I think it was so powerful to see somebody else doing it in the context I was, I was in. There were remote examples there were, but but again, at that time, you didn't even see black people often in a magazine. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or on a TV yeah. show. And if yeah. it was, it was imported from the States, which was wonderful, but it was distant, so painfully distant. Um, and so to have somebody who just said yes to your calling and to have leaders, men and women, white and black, who would say, you know, I see God doing something was uh, and to be welcomed, to have it, to have an experience of welcome, and for someone who would thrash out your ideas with you or thrash out a sense of what's God doing was huge. Was huge mm -hmm. because it was a yes 
to the thing that were going on in your own soul in your in your own story and it was mm-hmm. and and it's and it was more than a yes it was a yes we see God's doing something but now we're not going to say okay go off and do something we're going to come alongside you we're going to invest in you but invest in the you that you are not the you that makes us comfortable yeah um invest in the way that you're wired um open doors where we can all of those sorts of things and and I mean it was very difficult I, I'd like to I mean it was no utopia and there were lots of tears there was lots of loneliness and I think every time I stepped out on a stage I could see that there was maybe two other black people in the room every time I stepped into I mean you know as a woman when you are leading and speaking and you're the only woman in a room there's a vulnerability yeah. there yeah there's a vulnerability and you don't want to overcompensate. And there's also that thing um, that you feel of, God, don't let me be the last. Do you know what I mean? Don't let me be the one who shuts the door for every other woman, for every other black woman coming through, for every other young person coming through. Don't let me, (laughs) don't let me mess this up. And um, it's a kind of accountability that actually is a burden. Is that because you, it it makes it harder to enjoy. It took me a long time to realize that calling was something I could delight in with the Lord. Um, yeah. and enjoy and, re- and receive as a gift. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Rather than a time yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the pressure that I felt at the time. Yeah. And, you know, how much do you think also um, behind all of that was your your trust in the Lord and the, the what He has said to you about who you are? You know, there's like what people think and being, having to stand constantly with that pressure, that burden. And then it's your journey with the Lord. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that's probably what made it so conflicting because I think if I was left with just the pressure, I'd have walked away and done something else for sure. I, mm. I thought there were easier yeah. ways to yeah. live than yeah. this. Um, and I'm sure many of us as leaders think, you know, if we were doing it just because of us, we would have found another job by now, which was just more less demanding um, in so many ways. But I think I could not get away. It, it says, doesn't it, the gift and call of God is irrevocable. I could not get away from his goodness. I couldn't get away from the vision of the kingdom of God changing things yeah. in the world. I could not get away from the belief that that um of I didn't I expected the world to be broken yeah I mean I expected the world to be broken I expected that Jesus was the change agent for society and that his values were different and his and I was and I'm made in his image I'm made in his image and so that and so it was this constant what am I going to believe and am I going to believe what the racial realities are saying to me, the gender realities are saying to me, or am I going to believe what the Lord is saying to me and walk on that? And to be honest, it was a battle, sometimes in the yeah. same hour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Do you know, but that's that's such a good thing, uh, what you're saying there, Joe, because I can see that applying to so many people who, who see all kinds of obstacles and burdens that they're carrying, reasons why they can't step into their calling. And yet, you know, coming into agreement with, with what God says and that being kind of the stronger um, you know, if you're having two rows, you know, one with people and the other with God, God's going to win if you pay attention to him. Now, Joe, I'm white. I'm middle class. John and I are leading a, a predominantly white church. We do have some uh, quite a, a, a growing group of people from different, from diverse backgrounds. And um, since the death of Lord Floyd, we, we were really impacted, but we we kind of quite quickly shifted from what's going on in the US to actually what about here in the UK? And and as soon as we started looking into it, as soon as we started picking up the phone, talking to our black brothers and sisters in the church, 
people from different ethnicities, not just black, but, you know, uh, brown people and people from Asia and China and places who are in our church. And we just started asking them what their experience has been and, and our eyes were opened. And we started to become aware of things like white privilege. I'd never thought of it. Or, or that sometimes you can say a racist thing. You don't think you're racist, but you can say something. There's a spectrum of, of racism. And, you know, you might say, I'm not a racist, but somewhere, you know, you with blindness, we're saying things. What advice would you give to those of us um, as leaders who want to uh, embrace diversity in our church and enable, empower everybody, you know, whatever their skin colour, to be able to flourish. What are some things that you would advise us? What journey should we go on? I would say the first thing I would say to everybody is it's going to be a long journey. Um, if you are wanting to kind of make things look right, even for the, you know, sometimes we can do the wrong things with the right reasons. <laughs> you know, If we're yeah, looking for a quick fix, a silver bullet, a panacea, this is not the journey you want to go on. This is a humbling journey for you because the thing is, though you may be aware of this now, we've been aware for years. We've been aware. I was aware of racial inequity when someone first called me a name at the age of three years old. Um, so when you, when, where you have, and I'm 46 now. So when you have encountered something and are like, okay, my eyes have been opened. The challenge, one of your challenges is your eyes have been opened, but now you have to reckon with the fact that your brothers and sisters have been suffering, have been spat at, have been abused, have not got jobs, have not had opportunities for decades, and they are living with the grief. So when you, and, and, and they're living in the realities of that. So when you turn and speak to them, their first response has been about time. Where have you been? Um, cause, cause there aren't any participation awards for this. I remember off, I mean, I live in Minneapolis, uh, um, live in Minneapolis. So, um, when George Floyd was murdered, obviously there's a, a thing in the context of our family, but I remember feeling this surge of anger when I watched um, things happen in the UK. When I and I was like, Lord, what is wrong with me? And I realized, I thought it's because there were a couple of things that happened. One, my mum and I had a conversation and she said to me, my mum still lives in London. And she says, hey, where are you in relation to, um, into, to um, George Floyd and all the, all the racial uprisings happening? And I said, oh, mum, I'm about half an hour away in the car. It's not like when we lived near Brixton. And, the, and I just thought, here we are, and there are 40 years difference, and us talking about the same inequities, the same thing about police brutality, that it's just then we lived um, three miles from it, and now I'm 15 miles from it. And so that's the legacy of the world in which we're in. Yeah. That's yeah. the reality. So, and, and so, and I'm not saying that I know this doesn't make anybody feel better, but it, but facts, um, there are, there are, and, and, and it's, it may have been more pronounced in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but not always. And so I think that's the first thing I want to say to everybody. This is a long one. It's a tender one. It's a raw one. The different generations in your church may respond differently. How my mum, as an 80-year-old woman, deals with it is very different to how I deal with it. It's very different to how my daughters, who are biracial, deal with it. Um, and so it's... it. it and that may leave you feeling real vulnerable because you're like, I'm not quite sure what to feel or quite sure what to say or what language to use. Um, it requires incredible humility, incredible humility on our parts to, to listen and just think, oh, am I a terrible person because I'm white? Do you know what I mean, am I a terrible person because I'm privileged? And, and, and it may bring up all the defensiveness of, but, but, but because things like privilege, people will be like, well, I had a real rough life. And, and then it's hard to remember that privilege isn't about, it's not the, it's not the kind of suffering Olympics. It's about the things we never had to go through. Um, 
and, and more. And so it, this is a tough one for us as leaders. And I think we do really need to lean into the spirit of God. We do really need to ask ourselves again, God, show me, show me, show me, drop the scales from my eyes as a daily spiritual practice, which means that it, it may feel like a valley before you reach a mountaintop. And then alongside that, then it's considering what you're reading. It's considering who you're listening to. It's considering um the lived experience of others and what does that mean for them the, and and asking them and and again there's a difference between diversity and inclusion and equity so diversity is like you may have a sprinkling of people of color in your congregation that does not mean it's in, um that people are invited to the table yeah do you know what i mean i and and, yeah. and because the other thing with race is power power has a lot to do with it yeah so um deep breath friends and you know, if there was a time to get your prayer and fasting on, this is the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is hard and we will make mistakes. We will. Yeah. We will make yeah. mistakes. And I think that's what we're realising, Joe. This We're in this for the long haul. This, this has to be made right and it has to be in the church. And uh, there's a lot of repentance. There's a lot of, um, even recently, I, I, I made a mistake. I, I said something. I didn't, I didn't mean it. But when I said it, it came from a wrong belief. And uh, thankfully, the person uh, talked to me about it and I was able to, honestly, I was devastated, but it was so helpful because it led to actually a, a greater level of intimacy. And, uh, you know, we kind of went to another level where I felt I could ask even questions and know I may make mistakes here that I don't want to, I don't want to hurt you, but I need to know this and that. And so uh, we realized it is a long journey. Um, and Joe, I could honestly, I could talk about this for hours, but I, I also want to talk about the subject of burnout because um, obviously we are in really hard times and whoever we are, whatever we do, we could have a burnout experience. Now, you had a real burnout experience, significant, a few years ago. Tell us about that. Yeah, we, um, we, were, um, I was a camp, we were campus pastors at a church um, about seven, eight years ago, and it was wonderful. It was actually a really wonderful experience until it wasn't. <laughs> I don't know how to put it any other way than that, really. It was great and loved it. But there had, and there, the church was, I did, unbeknownst to a number of us, there were a number of things going on behind closed doors to the point where 12 of us, including the senior pastor, just all felt we needed to step down on the same day. Um, but in the midst of all of that, um, as that, as the kind of meltdowns took place, um, oh my gosh, I was, it's almost like all the old stories began to kick in all the old stories, because a number of things started happening. A number of one, one of the interesting things that start not pleasant, but interesting things started happening is that when there was gossip being said, and a lot was said to me about my ethnicity, it was the first time it ever been mentioned in this church. Mm. And like, Where's she really from? Or suddenly all the old, and, and it's, it's like, oh, okay. So, so it's fascinating that when, um, when you're under pressure, what comes out? And it, what, what came out under pressure was a, was a number of racist things that were said about me and my family. Um, so that was the one thing. So there's a story going on. And, and what that often triggers in me is when we were growing up as immigrants in the UK, it was, uh, the mantra was, look, um, for you to get anywhere, for you to get a job, to be treated as equal, you will have to be at least twice as good as everybody else. Wow. So that even if they don't like you because you're black, even if they don't respect you because you're a woman, you'll still get the job because you are way above and beyond what everybody else is. And my, I remember my aunt sitting me, I was about seven years old when we had that conversation for the first time. And a number of my friends have had the same of a number of ethnicities. And I know a number of women have had their similar stories they've thought about themselves professionally as well. Mm -hmm. And 
we're given that advice to survive, not because we're saying we're better or saying someone else is the enemy. It is more, how are you going to pay bills? <laughs> the kind of thing. Mm, yeah. um, this And this is the pathway. And so for me at that time, I'm like, I don't know how to be twice as good in this instance. Do you know what I mean? I've been doing this all my life and trying to be faithful. And yes, you're trying to be faithful for the Lord and all these other things, but these are the tracks going, you're kind of coming up against racism. You're coming up against all these things. Meanwhile, um, there are a number of young adults who we're investing in and they are all over the place because of what's happening. So you want to be there for people. So that means your days are longer. And so yeah. then so this, and so you can see the perfect storm brewing, can't you? The, yeah. the external pressures, um, the racism and the lies being said about you, the feeling that you've got to be twice as good. Your kids are going to school and you're wanting to make keep life normal and just keep on going, keep on going. You'll rest later. Late night phone call with somebody in tears, keep on going. Terrible email where somebody says something abusive to you, keep on going. And it, um, late night thing where people are panicking, stressing, money pressures, mm. um, because both my husband and I worked for the same church at that point. Um, and money pressures. What does this mean about bills? Will we get to see family this year because everybody's in the UK yeah. and it's like, and it just builds. Yeah. And so yeah. one of those things you feel you can handle and you don't realise you're handling 10 of those things. Yeah. And, and Joe, what, what happened? You, you, you ended up all this pressure, internal and external, and this, uh, and this belief that you have to work twice as hard. And I can see a number of people will relate to that sort of belief. Um, of, you know, I've got to perform, I've got to do, I've got to do better and, and things getting worse and worse. How, where did you end up? How did you, what, what happened to you? How did you know you were in burnout? What? Um, I think I, I, I learned, I realised I was burnt out um, when we left the church and it was quieter and peaceful and all of these things. Um, but I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. And so I'd stay up late because I would start having panic attacks in my sleep and um, anxiety attacks in my sleep. And what would happen is I'd wake up and I'd start grabbing at my throat. Um, and I, I mean, I know there's a whole spiritual continuum and what we can feel is happening, but I, but I'm, I've had panic. I knew it was a panic attack on this one. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't breathe. And I was like, and I remember saying to the Lord, could you make this stop? can you make this stop, Lord? I just need you to make this stop. And I stay up later and later and later. So I'd have, and, and the panic attacks increased three or four times a night, three or four times a night. Wow. Um, and so, um, and then obviously the next morning and breakfast is on the table and you send your kids to school and the, do you know what I mean? And you begin again. And it, uh, to the point where I, I think it was six months in of after about six months of this, I woke up and I was having heart palpitations and I had to go to the emergency room. And I was, um, and it was at that point um, when the doctor was asking, he said, your heart's fine, but what's going on? And when I said, he said, do you sleep? And I said, um, yeah, I slept in February. And he said, he said, Mrs. Saxton, it's October. And wow. that was the moment where it's like, okay, you cannot wow. pretend yeah. anymore. So, gosh, wow. And and you know, what do you think were some of the underlying factors? I mean, you've talked about patterns of thinking. You, you've talked about, um, you know, you, you're you're running so fast trying to resolve what's going on. Were, were there some sort of other underlying things do you think going on for you? Um, I think. I mean, I think it was. A, the, the, I think it was the helplessness of it all, because here's the, here's the other challenging thing about some of these, you've got to be twice as hard, twice as good and all of that kind of stuff. There's, there's the easy way I could say this is to say, you know, what we need to know is that Jesus loves us as we are, and we don't have to be that. Here's the problem though. My last racist response in my profession, and I'm a Christian speaker was 
this year. So wow. it's still happening. I, it's wow. still it's still happening where event organizers are being said, we don't want this black woman speaking. That was an event wow. I did in February. In Fe- so it's not like it's it's not like it's gone. No. I mean, it's not like it's gone anywhere. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and for those of us who are, as women, as we're de- as we're like, we know we can, we, we know it's not gone. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. Uh, and so I think that was probably one of this kind of, Lord, I'm wrestling with this because the challenges are still here. And mm-hmm. I, ju- and I, I, I don't want to, I don't know what else to do. This is, this is, it's worked for me before. I, and yeah. so I think that was part of it. I think some of it was just the loss and the grief and the pain. Um, we'd seen some wonderful things happen in that community. We were seeing some amazing breakthroughs. And so you sometimes want to hang on because it's like, will it all be lost? And you forget that you're not responsible, mm-hmm. that you're not the King of Kings <laughs> and that he yeah. will take care of it. But you know, you know, when you've done this enough times, you know, the devastation this causes, you know, you, I mean, I know people years on who are still walk, who are still like, ah, I can't go to church yeah. again. Yeah. Oh, wow. Those are the things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and Joe, if somebody is like experiencing, you know, they're they're not sleeping or or they're they're realizing they are, oh, I recognize, oh gosh, that sounds like me. What are some of the signs that you would say that would, that you need to take notice? So this is, this is more than just a a short little stressful thing. Um, There are a couple of things I would say. I would ask, are you sleeping? I, I mean, literally, are you sleeping well? Are you eating well? Are you drinking well? Of uh, some of the, but I, 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 sometimes we under, and particularly those of us who are in the more charismatic streams can forget the significance of your physical body. Do you know what I mean? We can yeah. bind and loose till yeah. the cows come home, and yet we still don't sleep. And we haven't asked ourselves a question about whether we're sleeping. Yeah. Um, um, so that would be one. When people ask you how you're doing and you say you're fine, because it's easier to say that than mm. say what's actually going on, mm. alarm bell. When, you, when you're when you just, I'm just going to get to here, just going to get to here. When your rest is always on the other side of a desperate mountaintop, yeah. that's an alarm to you. When people tell you they're worried about you or they're concerned, listen listen mm. to them when so, when sometimes you need a friend because you don't you don't see it yourself yeah you don't yeah. see where people are like um this feels like it's a little bit much or you don't need to do that as well but but for you you're like i'm just i've just got to keep on going and when we find like we're holding on so tightly because the busyness and the activity and the facing it or dealing with it or barreling through it feels safer than the unknown alarm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really helpful. I've heard you say you have one body and your leadership lives in it. Um, and obviously there are people watching here who might not be leaders, but you know, uh, you have one body and your motherhood lives on it or your career lives in it. Uh, t- tell me a bit about that. That's a just, uh, it was an inspiring phrase. Yeah, I, I think it was probably one of my takeaways from that moment, that year, um, because after, after that year, um, after I got to the doctors and there were a number of things that happened, um, I, um, the doctor gave me anti-anxiety meds. I went to counseling for a numb, for a long time. Um, I kind of built up my prayer support <laughs> and everything. I had people like ministering. It was like people washing your feet on a rake. Do you know what I mean, just praying for the spirit to do his work, surrounding us as a family and all of that kind of, you know, so we had this kind of multi, multidisciplinary response. Mm-hmm. But I think I realized, you know, God, God has, he places a call in our lives. He gives us this opportunity. When your body is out, you're out. You're yeah. out. 
Yeah. You know, so if I can't get up that day, and I'm not saying, you know, it, um, when, if you are not now, let me qualify this. There are those of us who are leading in the midst of chronic illness. I'm not saying that, what I'm saying is, are we taking care with whatever our, whatever our life is? I'm not saying we're limited and therefore we can't serve the Lord because that would mm-hmm. assume our brothers and sisters with different disabilities, I mean, who are, who are slaying in the name of Jesus, aren't doing it. And they are. What I'm saying to us, though, is if you are not taking care of what God has given you and the life you have. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. It's so important. Um, we, we've been talking in the last few years a lot about rest and, you know, just getting away and resting. Um, but also, I, I love the fact that you talked about people asking you questions or telling you, you know, you're not doing, you're not doing well, Joe. what's going on? And how, you know, and, and I've heard you say before about needing your people, the importance of leading in community. And, you know, um, Tell me a little bit about why you're so passionate about uh, community and... Oh, I, th- I mean, there are, there are... Actually, there are two sets of reasons why I'm really passionate about it. One of them is... And I think all of us, all of us would recognize this. When we hear the stories of a leader who has, to coin a phrase, fallen from grace or has had deep crisis, you hear uh, there's often a familiar refrain. I was empty. I was at the end of myself. I was lonely. I was lonely. So many leaders are incredibly lonely. Um, And I get it because when we are leading worship or when we are speaking or maybe we, um, sometimes the dynamic is, is such that we are, we, we're not connected in our communities as deeply as we feel able as or as we'd like, or we've just got used to kind of going off the stage and being on our own. But actually, we really, really need people who will ask us difficult questions. And I say that to us, whether we are leading in churches, leading in business, entrepreneurs, in the context of our home or community, who do you have that is who is willing to ask you difficult, vulnerable things, who doesn't think just because you're awesome, they have no questions to ask. The truth is you are awesome. It's just you're also human. Um, so we are yeah. tested and tempted like anybody else. Oh, gosh, that's so true. No, you carry on, Joe. That's so true. Yeah, I think the other piece is why we really need our people. I'm, I, it's, to be honest, it's drawn from when I remember, I, one of the things I remember growing up with my mum and my aunts is on Sunday nights, they used to braid my hair. It was very painful. <laughs> um, but you'd have these women who would sit and cook and um, but they would talk to each other and they'd tell you where to get the best meat and they'd tell you where... You know, they process difficult situations, relationships, racism, kids. And as a community, they made their way in the world. And I think what I've learned from even as I remember it is the other right reason why we need each other is because we will bring out each other's gifts. We will mentor yeah. each other. We will, refi- we will call out what God is doing. We will speak life over, over each other. But we can't do that when we're not in close enough proximity. And and rather than compete, we could be collaborating. We could be commissioning one another. We could be rising strong together um, and being launched into the world for the purposes of God. And I think for both of those reasons, that's why it's hugely important that we have good, strong, vibrant relationships with people. Joe, there's so many jewels there, just so many things that we we get to take home from that, especially, you know, uh, leading in community where not only you're accountable and people can ask you difficult questions, but also it's it's people that help draw out your gifts and you where you can really grow. And Joe, it's been a delight to interview you and to see you flourishing at this time in your life, married with two little children, two little girls. And so thank you for being with us for this uh, Vineyard uh, National Gathering. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much.